0: this month's edition of the ninja tune podcast finds our producer jack smith in conversation with annie gavrilescu of the charity help refugees ninja tune staff were recently volunteering in the town of calais northern france playing a small part in the inspirational work that a number of charities are doing there in aid of refugees. In this interview, we try to get a better idea of the challenges charities are facing and why their work is becoming increasingly vital, even as the conditions of refugee populations fade from the headlines. The music in the podcast is provided by The Calais Sessions, an album recorded in a makeshift studio in the so-called Jungle, a former migrant and refugee camp that once stood on the outskirts of town. You can find the album by searching The Calais Sessions in Bandcamp, with all proceeds going to Citizens UK. The opening track is a recent recording of ah R4 Um, an Eritrean migrant living in the woods around Calais who had made his own kra, a type of traditional Eritrean guitar, out of scrap materials. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>
1: Oh, um Annie of Help Refugees, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Recently, we came a bunch of Ninja Tune staff came to visit your warehouse in Calais, mm-hmm. where you guys are doing some pretty incredible work. Um, what do you consider the mission statement of Help Refugees, mm-hmm. and uh, whereabouts are you active on the ground?
3: The the way that we operate is by providing emergency aid. Uh, to refugees in the Middle East and Europe mainly. But it doesn't really stop there. We also try to advocate for their fundamental rights to be um, respected. And we advocate for long-term solutions that will actually prevent organizations like us, you know, part of the grassroots movement, to have to fill in the gaps left by governments and big NGOs. So we go for emergency aid and advocating for long-term solutions. And we do that in 10 different countries, uh, including France, um, Serbia, Italy, Greece, Lebanon, Turkey, Syria. And that's been in two and a half years since we started.
1: Around how many displaced people are now in northern France? And uh, if you can even put a number on it. Mm -hmm. And how does that kind of compare to when the Calais jungle Mm -hmm. was uh, at its peak?
3: Well, um, in, in the old jungle, uh, we actually d- used to do monthly censuses uh, of the population there. And the, the peak of the population that we observed uh, and counted um, were was just over 10,000. Um, so that was in September 2016. Um, at the moment, there are around 700 refugees in, in, in Calais, around two or 300 in Dunkirk. Um, However, because there's such high mobility between northern France, Paris, other small camps, um, and even Brussels, um, there are probably in the region of maybe 1,500 to 2,000 refugees in the area. It's just that they're constantly on the move, constantly being chased from place to place.
1: I think that was the most surprising thing about it. Some of the work that you're obviously doing in the the warehouses or that your volunteers are doing uh, is sorting out tents that have been kindly donated by people obviously you know, all across Europe and elsewhere. Mm. Yet, when got actually going out into the field, didn't see any tents. Mm. I was just wondering if you could elaborate a bit as to why why that is.
3: The French authorities at the moment are um, obsessed with preventing what they call a fixation point. Um, and to you and me, you know, and just you know, normal people speak. Uh, the fixation point might mean a camp, um, and that's perfectly understandable. Nobody really wants another jungle like before. However, the way that they're interpreting that fixation point concept um, is is kind of strange. They they see it as anything that enables people to settle, um, enable. Enables people to survive in northern France. So any any semblance of settlements like tents, sleeping bags, blankets, um, and even last year in in March, the the local mayor actually essentially criminalised the distribution of food uh, to refugees in the area um, using the exact same excuse. Um, and when they Uh, banned the distribution of food you know it was it was absolute chaos one volunteer got arrested um and that's just kind of symptomatic of of how much the authorities want to prevent any kind of settlement in the area there's uh, a lot of intimidation there's constant confiscation and destruction of property it's it's relentless
1: you mentioned another charity Mm -hmm. um that operates out of your warehouse in calais I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the charities that Mm -hmm. um, share that space. Mm
3: -hmm. So um, we we started the warehouse um, when we first went down to Calais uh, with uh, L'Auberge des Migrants, uh, who are a local charity. They've been going for almost 10 years now. And at the time, they were just a group of retirees who were a bit scared of the British invasion of volunteers who just descended on them. but since then, um, so many other other organizations have joined us, like the Refugee Community Kitchen um, since December 2015, um, who've been providing food for refugees in northern France since then. Every single day, they haven't missed a day of service. Um, then we have the Refugee Infobus, who um, empower people with technology, and they let them charge their phones and have Wi-Fi to call home, and give them um, information about asylum routes in the UK and France. Um, Then we have the Refugee Youth Service, who are leading our child protection team uh, with a legal advisor and a social worker trying to get kids into the child child protection system or referring them to the legal routes available to the UK. then we have Utopia 56, another French organisation who we share all the distribution work with. And they work in a few um, cities in France and Paris. And then uh, we have the uh, Refugee Women's Centre who look after women and families and kids in Dunkirk and Calais. And this, uh, more recently, the School Bus Project who literally have the most beautiful double-decker bus. And it provides a sort of safe space for people to just be with each other Um, they have lessons um, on the on the second floor and yeah that's our big happy family
1: either on a more national level, Mm -hmm. or local level, authorities could be doing to to make this work easier?
3: Mm. Uh, Well, first of all, on the distribution of food, when President Macron came to Calais, um, he gave this hour-long speech, um, and part of that, uh, he announced that the state would take charge of the distribution of meals um, in the region. That was a surprise to everybody, including his own staff, uh, which is why we actually think that he made a mistake in saying that and now they're all scrambling to kind of make it happen. Um, But until and unless that happens, um, it's Refugee Community Kitchen who are still making two and a half meals, two and a half thousand meals every single day. um, And they're the only source of food for refugees in Northern France still, at this point. Um, And they they operate from, from our warehouse in Calais. Even if it's a mistake, that is a sign that perhaps the state is actually able and might at some point be willing to take responsibility for, um, for the refugee situation in northern France. Um, the problem is, of course, that the situation in Calais means that there have been refugees and migrants in the area for over 20 years. Um, clearly, their strategy of deterrence is not working. They were using a strategy of deterrence when the jungle was there. And they're using one now when there's 800 people. It's it's clearly not working. It's just making life hell for those who are there. The The people that come to Calais, you know, come for specific reasons. Um, and uh, trying to deter them in the first place just will never work. There are proposed uh, legislation reforms on asylum and immigration going through the French parliament at the moment. Um, They haven't got support from any side of the argument. The right thing that it's not hard enough on immigrants, um, the... Academics, uh, immigration lawyers, uh, human rights defenders, NGOs think that it's incredibly damaging uh, to refugees, and that it will probably be counterproductive and lead to more people coming to to the uh, to Calais, trying to get to the UK. So, all in all, I think the one thing that their overall strategy has been missing for the past 20 odd years is any shred of compassion. Um, if you look at Greece, the people are so incredibly welcoming. There are so many more refugees there, and the country itself, economically, is not doing well, and yet the people are more than able and willing to welcome people into their homes, into their society. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see. If the French authorities, or even if the French public spearheaded that and, and learned from, from that, uh, maybe that would change things.
1: Is the way that the Greek government dealing with the crisis any better and if so what could other countries in the EU learn from the way that they're dealing with it?
3: Mm. Well, the differ- well the differences are many. Yeah. <laughs> the main one I think perhaps being that um, Calais has been so politicised, it is a political Crisis. I I don't like referring to Cali or even the whole refugee situation um, in Europe as a crisis because that denotes that we cannot deal with it, that we cannot handle it, that we don't have capacity to to handle it. And that's not true. Um, Europe is more than able um, to to deal with this number of refugees. Um, It's just that our governments are not willing to do it properly um, out of fear that more will come, they will attract more instead of actually recognizing how vulnerable people are who have to flee and are looking at us to, to seek refuge. So yeah, the differences are many. The fact that some, there there is a network of um, local helpers who actually host people uh, secretly. However, in France, it can actually be uh, deemed illegal uh, if you host people without papers in your home, uh, If you ho- if you have people without papers in your car. Um, It's called an offense of solidarity. Uh, People have been convicted of that. So it is a societal problem in the sense that uh, the authorities are very much driving uh, the public attitudes and the the public perceptions, and um, they are pushing those who are willing to help into a corner and ostracizing them.
1: I mean, talking of public perception, Mm -hmm. in your time, Working with help refugees Have there been any sort of key moments that you could pick out or are kind of at the forefront of your mind? Where you've seen a sea change in public perception of if we're not calling it a crisis then mm-hmm. the the either an influx of donations mm-hmm. or Where you've seen a sort of softening of the rhetoric around it?
3: Um, I've seen both sides of that coin to be honest um, Around the time that Help Refugees started, because we only started in August, September 2015, that was a turning point. Um, It felt like so many people were just tired of seeing people having to flee their homes, pouring into Europe. Um, And for, for a second, recognized that as, yes, a large number of people, but people who needed help. And that is when so many uh, volunteers you know, um, ended up in Calais. That's when Help Refugees started. That's when the grassroots movement um, really, really took, um, uh, had momentum. The, in terms of influx of people in Calais itself, um, it was, the, the population was just steadily growing at all times from the summer of 2015 to the summer of 2016. There were just so many people. Um, and all through that winter, the the flow of people didn't stop. In terms of softening attitudes, I I think I'm maybe more of a cynic, and I can pinpoint a lot more moments, a lot many, like many, many more moments when the 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 attitudes have actually turned negative. In fact, we, um, you know, we managed to uh, get into law uh, the Dubs amendment as part of the immigration bill, which would allow um, unaccompanied children, uh, refugee children, to be safely transferred to the UK that became legislation and I remember when the first transfer started happening in the Daily Mail front page had pictures of children's translators, uh, men in the old jungle camp, children's families brothers and said you know this facial recognition software puts them at 32 well maybe they were that age because they were not actually the children that you were um, claiming to portray. Um, Like, in in the old jungle, there were children as young as eight completely on their own. Boys, eight-year-old boys on their own in Europe's biggest illegal refugee camp, Europe's biggest shantytown. Um, And at the end of the camp, there were 1,500 kids on their own. Um, And yet, because of that one front page and how bigger deal that got made of, the shi- there, there was definitely a shift um, against helping child refugees and I don't know if we've recovered since then. Um, I, whenever we get you know really trolling comments about the work that we do, you know, they always reference, are they actually children? Well, if you were doing my job you'd know. Yeah, there are.
1: I actually remember around the time that the the, those front pages were appearing mm-hmm. and it was being taught, it, it came up as a, uh, I think it was Yav, uh, Yanis Varoufanakis mm-hmm. was on Question Time. It was up in South Shields or somewhere, mm-hmm. some, somewhere in England. Mm-hmm. And yet in the same way that questions like, um, questions about housing policy or benefits or mm-hmm. whatever whatever they were debating on that show. One of the questions was, do you think it should be compulsory for all child refugees coming to the UK to have an age test Mm -hmm. with the work that you guys are doing yes it's about helping people on the ground but you're also sort of fighting a PR war Mm -hmm. about how the people that you are trying to help has there been any pushback from politicians saying I would love to do something to help but I'm worried about how it would be perceived within the press
3: um not explicitly because the political figures that are on our side are very vocally on our side and the people who are not on our side just ignore us or tell us we're wrong but in terms of the age test the UK does have an age test and every child that comes through Calais or any in by any other legal route or informal route every child will have to be subjected to an age test and that age test has been demonstrated to be incredibly damaging Um, over and over again. There is so much literature, so many studies done from the refugee council to grassroots groups, um, to academics, to psychologists explaining how being tested and prodded and being questioned and being assumed to be a liar is more damaging to uh, the mental health of displaced people, especially underage uh, children, um, than Maybe even parts of their journeys or the original reason that they had to flee. It's incredibly damaging because you reach a place of safety and you think you've made it, you think you're finally safe, and then you're just told you're a liar um, constantly over and over again by the Home Office. <laughs>
2: b khalaqat b to raju niyazat madar madar I bua kunemagan fish yalla jor to ratana madar madar madar
1: the, the way that European politics has shifted, it's like the, the what used to be considered the centre-right parties mm-hmm. and even in some way the centre-left parties are now so worried about being politically mm-hmm. outflanked by the far-right mm-hmm. whether it's alternative mm-hmm. for Deutschland or UKIP or Front National, yeah. that um, they've almost been bullied into mm-hmm. not kind of ever voting with their conscience.
3: There's definitely a danger that the far right is winning um, by intimidating centrist parties, like you said. And the effects of that are being seen exactly in, you know, the immigration reforms that are going through the French Parliament. They're being seen on the fact that the Dubs Amendment scheme was actually closed by Amber Rudd, our Home Secretary. Um, the fact that it's taken us, help refugees, taking the Home Office to court to reconsider some of those restrictions. And we're still taking them to court.
1: A lot of our listeners might not know a lot about the mm-hmm. Dubs Amendment. Um, so I was just wondering if you could, you know, give, give a small outline of mm-hmm. what it is, mm-hmm. basically what we what we promised mm-hmm. as a country, what we did, mm-hmm. and what we are now doing mm-hmm. through.
3: Um, so the Doves Amendment came um, it was, it was actually championed by uh, Lord Alfred Dubbs, who was a child refugee himself. He was on the transport in the Second World War. And uh, he was also president of the Refugee Council for many years. And he actually worked out what the UK's fair share of child refugees from Europe would be, considering the fact that in, I think, 2016, 90,000 uh, child refugees had entered uh, Europe. Um, they were unaccompanied. Um, so, he proposed that the UK take uh, 3,000 uh, child refugees without family already in the UK. Um, there is another legal route, um, um, which is called family reunification under the Dublin Three Convention, which allows children to be reunited with their, with their parents or spouses. Um, or children with their aunts and uncles, etc., or siblings, um, across European borders. However, that process itself takes so, so long um, and is so bureaucratic. um, And it doesn't actually uh, provide a solution for those who don't have any family, but are equally or even more vulnerable. The amendment was proposed with that 3,000 number. The government came back and said, we cannot have a number on it, but we will concede that we have to take some we will have to consult the local authorities on their capacity, uh, which was fair enough. Um, However, the reason that we're now taking the Home Office to court was over how they implemented that. Uh, They didn't actually consult Northern Ireland. They didn't really consult Scotland they didn't really consult Wales Um, the local councils that they did consult uh, many of them came back to us when we started the proceedings and told us we didn't know there was a deadline on the consultation we didn't know which format to send it in so our numbers were not being counted and a Freedom of Information Act request showed that over 1,000 spaces at the time that we started the proceedings were still unfilled so it went from what the public assumed would be 3,000. Uh, that didn't happen. They made a promise that 3,000 children and vulnerable people from the region, you know, the, the uh, sort of Lebanon, Jordan, Syria region, would be taken. That hasn't happened either, but, you know, we'll get on that later. And so far, Around 220 children have been transferred, pretty much all of them with a handful of exceptions during the demolition of the Kali jungle. And that only happened um, because they were so scared, because they were so, they had been shamed into it in February the next, last year, so in 2017, they actually put a cap on that at uh, 480 but only after we made so much noise about the original um, cap of 350 that they founded uh, an uh, administrative error um, that added 130 places on top of that. Um, So either way there are now 260 places that are still unfilled under the government's own quota. We are challenging that uh, capped number anyway. The problem with that was that the eligibility deadline for the Dubs Amendment was the the date of the EU-Turkey deal, which was the 20th of March 2016. It's almost been two years since then, and so many children, thousands of children have grown out of that eligibility. Children have been refused and have never been allowed to appeal in any way. All of the children that came from the Horn of Africa, for example, that are now in Calais, um, that came through Libya and Italy, that horrendous dangerous route, they had nothing to do with the EU-Turkey deal and and yet they were arbitrarily under the same deadline that was only lifted uh, a couple of weeks ago and that is again because we made so much noise about how damaging that deadline was and the fact that a 15 year old boy died in december last year in calais um, in a hit and run accident when he could have been in the uk he actually had family here Um, he could have been here through any of the legal routes and yet he was abandoned like many many others and only then they lifted the deadline and set it to january uh this year um that means that that will actually allow 260 places to be to be filled we are very much persisting in suing the government we do that quite a lot because there shouldn't be a cap a capped number on how many children we uh, we take in safely and we prevent them from dying at any borders. There is absolutely no reason why local authorities cannot keep the scheme open as and when they have spaces available. A government paper actually said that there is no shortage of foster families for these children. There is no reason why we just cannot just keep taking children that need our help. No reason at all. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus we
1: Is the UK government doing its fair share? And how does it compare to other countries that have similar schemes?
3: We are doing terribly, terribly. Um, The UN actually um, essentially sent a message to the Home Secretary um, telling her that we need to double our quota of vulnerable people that we take. Um, They are taken through the the UNHCR legal route from from the region or from their um, countries of origin. Um, we are so behind our quotas um the the number of people that we've taken through the Syrian vulnerable people scheme uh the the relocation scheme is fifty three it's It's tiny um
1: just, just just for some context for people mm-hmm. like is there another country that where you know the number so we can just compare that yeah. a poultry 53. So time.
3: 53 is one specific scheme. Yeah. Our um our sort of uh, quota is I think twenty thousand by twenty twenty. There are sixty-five million uh, displaced people in the world today. Twenty-three of them are refugees, uh, the others are internally displaced. Of those, um, about a million and a half are in Europe at the moment. There is a camp in Kenya, in Dadaab, It has 400,000. Turkey has over 2 million Syrian refugees right now. Um, Lebanon has a population of refugees that is a quarter of its own population, and they are doing that with open hands. Europe and the UK are actually helping a minuscule number of these refugees who need help and the number of displaced people that need help. Which is why I hate this word crisis because to refer to Calais or to Greece as a crisis is wrong. It's not a crisis because we cannot handle it. Maybe it's a crisis because we will not handle it. That's the problem. Um, The fact that there are maybe 1,500 refugees in northern France right now, that is minuscule. That is absolutely minuscule. Um, The fact that we are not dealing with it, with any kind of humanity, is just criminal. And now, with the the horrible news coming out of um, Eastern Ghouta in Syria, it's very clear that, you know, wars will not stop ravaging. Um, Climate change refugees, that will be... that is coming. Um, there There are so, so many people that we could be helping, and we are in the richest, wealthiest, most privileged part of the world, and yet it's developing nations um like lebanon like Jordan, like kenya who are actually bearing the brunt of this it's it's pretty shameful
1: that's a really interesting point um what i wanted to expand upon because it's something i've done a little bit of reading into but something that maybe i know i hadn't considered previously but the idea that this is going to you are right that we shouldn't be calling it a crisis mm. as well because people are migratory. Mm. And you know, the, the idea that mm. we went for thousands of years without even passports, so the idea that people don't move around is just mm. f- a fiction. Mm. But more importantly, it's something that we have to legislate for because, as you say, one of the defining challenges of the coming century is that climate change is going to create more refugees Mm -hmm. than war ever could Mm -hmm. do the authorities have any idea about how many um, people are currently refugees as a result of climate change
3: well technically at the moment under the current definition of what a refugee is it doesn't include that a refugee according to the current definitions and that kind of is symptomatic again of of how we're not prepared for what's next um we actually have the opportunity now to be a little bit proactive and look ahead and we're not doing that at all and it's 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 gonna come back and bite us (laughs) um but yes, a, a refugee, uh, under the current definition, is somebody who's had to flee and is outside of their country. And they've had, they are at risk of persecution and serious harm because of their ethnicity and race um, and sexual orientation, um, part of a social group, uh, religion, etc. We will have displaced people who will come to wealthier parts of the world. And that is because of the direct actions of these wealthier parts of the world. Um, And yet our legislation, our border system, our governments, our economy, we're not even preparing for it. It, It's ordinary people trying to solve things and and, and so many people suffering at the hands of that. It's, It's, yeah, it just baffles me.
1: in Mm cali nothing really prepares you for the fact that it's no longer a camp of people that are Mm -hmm. able to settle and it's not even small camps of people in tents Mm -hmm. the problem is actually that there are thousands of people sleeping on the streets Mm -hmm. in the woods like in the woods the the help that you're providing isn't really to give these people quality of life, mm. it's to give them the most basic level of uh, quality of life that yeah. um, that anyone would expect.
3: We get accused quite often actually um, of the fact that we are attracting people to Calais, the fact that we are enabling them to stay there for longer. Um, and more recently by the lovely mayor of Calais. She p- publicly and repeatedly said that she would like to see NGOs prosecuted um, and accuse us of arming uh, refugees. Um, yeah, she's pretty ludicrous. Um, in any case, we get accused of this stuff all the time and I just, I try as much as I can to explain. We are literally, <coughs> trying to meet people's most basic needs. We cannot give them shelter. Um, As a collective, we can give them hot food. Um, As a collective, we can give them, uh, you know, secondhand clothes, we can give them a sleeping bag, we can give them a tent maybe, and that will have, you know, a lifespan of a few days. Uh, But nobody comes to Cali or stays in Cali for a plate of rice or an old pair of trousers, nobody. These are people who are constantly on the run. They are being chased by the very people who are meant to be protecting them. I'm, I'm terrified of what this is doing to people's mental health. And I'm terrified because I know to some extent. You know, I have this sort of saying that nobody who comes to Calais and stays as a refugee for any length of time will leave there without some form of PTSD. And that is because to a few people, Cali is almost the the end of the road. And the end is so close. And yet it's one of those places where the neglect and abuse from authorities is so unbelievably and unexpectedly common um, that it really breaks people. Um, If you meet them and you stay with them for a while, you see them deteriorate. I had a friend who was, um, was a child uh, when he finally made it to the UK um, and turned 18 while in the care of the state. He had been abandoned by the Home Office during the whole chaos of the demolition of the jungle. And he was going through all of those tests and all of those interviews and all that scrutiny with the Home Office. And he ended up taking his own life last year. And that came after a long battle with severe depression, with so much self-doubt that he just didn't think he should live anymore. And I'm, I'm absolutely terrified of that, what that will do to all of these young people, um, because they could be 14, 15, 16, 17, they could be 19 or 20. It, it will affect them for the rest of their lives.
1: When we recently came to a volunteer in the camp, we being, a select group of Ninja Tune staff, there was a incident that had happened Mm -hmm. very recently where a young boy had um, been blinded in one eye Mm -hmm. um, in an incident involving the Calais authorities. Do you guys have any more details about what is happening with that and how does it kind of link into the wider issue of increasing incidents mm-hmm. of police violence?
3: Um, so what happened with this with this boy was that um, there was a large-scale clearance, one of the big distribution points, and uh, we think it was a new company of CRS, they were a bit on edge, and they started shooting tear gas canisters into the crowd, um, both volunteers and refugees. And unfortunately, either a tear gas canister or a rubber bullet hit um, this boy, um, in the eye, and he he lost it. He almost nearly lost his other eye as well. He had a huge skull fracture. He was he was he's still in hospital and being treated. The the violence in Calais is is pretty relentless. It comes from the police. Um, there are tensions between communities. That's not um, we won't brush over that. It does happen. There are tensions from these smuggling networks. There are just tensions because it's really cold and horrible, and people have nothing. It's full of very friendly individuals in a very difficult situation. Um, hostility is pretty unescapable from all angles.
2: Alleluia, menisane hal amin. Alleluia, uudun chelahal. Alleluia, yordano selim amin. Alleluia, kundu kafala maabedum damu. Kaale hasazab. Halle Luya, Lady Sunday, Halle Luya, Uluchinaha, Halle Luya, Yordano Sindham, Halle Luya, Kendika Feller, Mabenu, Kale Hazazen.
1: One common story that uh, was quite pervasive among many of the, the migrants living in these camps. When the jungle was initially broken up and uh, burned down Mm. by the authorities, a lot of them were offered the opportunity to go to other parts of Mm -hmm. France, ostensibly to be able to apply for Mm -hmm. asylum.
3: There were people living in the old jungle who already had asylum in France. Um, They had papers. It's just that they weren't given a place to stay. They weren't given any accommodation, any services available to them and when the jungle was dispersed and like you said it burned down um, the vast majority of the people did go to these accommodation centres and the majority of them actually applied to stay in France that to me was was surprising Um, but it also showed me that if you give them the chance to go somewhere safe and to see that France is not Calais, people will very gladly take it. Um, and it's the same now, actually. Not everybody who's in Calais wants to go to the UK. There are people who are desperate to stay in France. I met this guy, um, Ishmael. He, I think I was with a journalist at the time, and they got talking, He, Ishmael got a bit agitated. And uh, he lifted his shirt up. And he showed us these enormous scars all over his torso um, where he'd been stabbed by the Taliban. And he said that as soon as he got to Calais, because it's actually impossible to claim asylum in France in Calais. He went to Lille, which is um, a city nearby, um, and he... He went to the asylum office and he asked to put his fingerprints down and start his application and they told him he wouldn't get any accommodation for three months and they sent him back to the woods in calais there are quite a few people in in that situation and a lot of what we do uh despite what you know the the government will have you think um is trying to convince people that France is actually really lovely. They do support people. Um, People in other parts of the country are really welcoming. It's just that Calais is toxic. Um, The police there are brutal. Uh, And we try to make people understand somehow that even if their experience of Calais has been being beaten by police and being tear gassed and having their stuff taken and having so much hostility around, that is not the whole of France and that the UK is not paved with gold, that the UK is not a paradise of tolerance. But it, it, it's hard to do, but we're, we're definitely trying.
1: A lot of these people who are trying to claim asylum or trying to get to the UK have certain ideas about what the UK is and what exactly it is that they're going to receive when they get to these places. Mm -hmm. Who is spreading this information and who benefits from it? Mm
3: -hmm. We have our theories. (laughs) Um, The UK is a very profitable destination for smuggling networks. Um, I tend to call them exploitative smuggling networks um, because some, you know, might dabble in uh, various kinds of exploitation of the people that are paying them to be smuggled over. Um, It isn't seen as trafficking, uh, but its exploitation is rife. So in terms of profiting, it's definitely these criminal networks that are profiting from the misinformation, who are probably the cause of a lot of misinformation. They are actually profiting from the fact that our governments are limiting and restricting legal routes that people could take instead of having to to, um, work with these networks. There's also the fact that, you know, the UK did go around massive parts of the world for many many years calling itself great great Britain um, that kind of stuck <laughs> um, so a lot of people have this dream vision of what the UK is a land where they can be free a land where their rights will be respected where they will be treated as um, the people they really could be and and obviously that's not that's not really true um, I've met quite a few people who, you know, um, they worked with the British Army as um, interpreters in Afghanistan, people who were completely abandoned by them. I've met children whose families is the only thing they they could tell them when they sent them away, uh, just get to the UK, I hear it's good, and because that's something that their parents told them, they have this sense of duty that they have to. Other people are just, they just don't know. <laughs> Other people have family that they cannot bear to be away from. They have friends who are the only people they have in the world. It's just such a complicated quagmire of, of, of everything. I've heard this called as not a refugee crisis, but a misinformation crisis. I think there's definitely, definitely an element of that.
1: I guess it's in some people's interests to make it seem as if it's unsolvable. That the problem is so big mm. that it can only be solved through extreme means, mm. whether that means loosening up laws around how you can treat these people mm. or just hoping that if you treat them badly enough they 'll just go back to mm. where they came from
3: that seems to be the preferred method at the moment, but it doesn't even have to be that extreme it can, if if we 're going to tackle this misinformation crisis um, it can be as simple as actually making. Accurate, official information available to them in their own language, so they can make their own informed decisions. These people are intelligent. They have gotten this far. They they should be able to make their own decisions. And yet, because there's just such a blatant lack of information, it's still grassroots groups. There's the the refugee info bus who provides you know Wi-Fi charging and then um, asylum information. It shouldn't be them doing it. Like if you try to find information about how to apply for asylum in France or in the u k on your own, good luck with that <laughs> it's It's as simple as that it's it's It just seems that every avenue possible that our governments could take to make it hard for people to be informed about their rights and have their rights respected is somehow blocked or restricted.
1: What advice would you give to anyone either listening or just someone that has been curious for a long time Mm -hmm. about volunteering with a project like this Mm -hmm. where can they find you what skills do you need
3: you don't need special skills if you're a driver we already want you (laughs) if you speak french we want you if you speak pashtu arabic Tigrinya, amharic any of these please we want you You just need to go to helprefugees.org. There's all the information you could possibly want about volunteering in France, in Serbia, in Greece. And yeah, come and say hi.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank
2: you. (laughs) فاتي ما تدوني كحاسب بفرقي عبدن سرا ورياتي زر سأين من الكفن فاتي ما تدوني كحاسب بفرقي عبدن سرا ورياتي agan pres galiwe khaba derive male kitan se parananasse omat yele nei nei leiti burhanai زير ساعه وين مولو ساعه من الصوات اخي فطيني تدوينا Abdul Seraoui, Atiyou, Zalalaween, Mal Oh, my, Siyalei, Leib, 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 alai ti